Thank you, team. You guys can you guys can go ahead and have a seat, and our kids can head up to be with our team in Redemption Kids. So, kids, go ahead and head up. If you're a new parent and you want to escort your kid uh, to Redemption Kids area, feel free to do that uh, as we get started here in God's Word today. Well, let me welcome you to Christmas Sunday at Redemption Hill. We're so thankful that God led you to come and worship with us. Uh, we know this is a Sunday where a lot of our people are already traveling to see family and friends, uh, you know, across the country. But this is also a Sunday when some of our family is here with us. And so if you're new, if you're family, uh, visiting family, welcome to Redemption Hill Church. Uh, we probably love the family member that you came with, so be encouraged, you know. That's a joke. We love it. We love them. We love them a lot. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and let me just welcome any other guests that are, that are here uh, today uh, for maybe the first time. We're so thankful that you took time out of your weekend to come and learn more about who God is and reflect on what Christmas is all about with us. Well, uh, I want to read a letter to you that I received in the mail this week uh, that I believe you will find uh, quite encouraging. Uh, so this is, uh, this is what it says. Dear Pastor Turley, I don't get a lot of letters like that, but you know what I'm saying. Um, Dear Pastor Turley, on behalf of the Mefford Housing Authority Board of Commissioners and myself, I wish to express our gratitude for the thoughtfulness and generosity of the members of Redemption Hill Church. The large distribution of 150 turkey dinners that RHC members provided to families at our Willis Ave and the Pre-Village Family Developments was far beyond our expectations. Over the past years, the members of the church truly give our residents the opportunity to enjoy a family celebration during Thanksgiving holiday. The events and the involvement from your community groups are appreciated throughout the year at our elderly and disabled family developments as it brings the residents together and sparks heartfelt joy for all. Redemption Hill Church is a great asset to the Medford community, and we are thankful for the support and contributions of your members to the residents of our developments. Please share our gratitude to all your members. Sincerely, Jeffrey L. Driscoll, Executive Director. So how about that? Let's give it up. Let's give it up for... Let's give it up for God's work and what he's doing in the life of our church. And, and I wanted to share that because he asked me to share it. What a great opportunity just to go ahead on Sunday morning and, and express that gratitude to you. But I, but I do so for a couple of other reasons, right? It's important to know when your generosity is recognized, but it's also important to know what your generosity does for someone else. If you noticed, he talked about uh, how our generosity, pulling our resources together to provide Thanksgiving meals for 150 families across Medford, it created an opportunity for their family to experience the holiday in a different way. He talked about uh, them experiencing joy together. He said that uh, by our efforts, we supported them in what was happening in their lives and even in the communities where uh, these families live, where we serve. And so, uh, so thankful for how we were able to pull together as a church to make that happen like we've done for the past uh, seven or eight years. And uh, I share that because what we did at Thanksgiving is a picture of what 
Christmas is all about. You know that the Christmas season is really defined by this idea of giving and receiving. Most of you probably this coming week are going to celebrate a Christmas tradition celebrated all over the world when you exchange gifts from yourself to someone that you love. And it's in the, the, the giving of gifts that we communicate how much we value another person, right? We, we communicate how much we value. Our gifts show the, 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 the thoughtful consideration of how we can give of ourselves for the benefit of someone else. That's what love is all about. And, and oh, by the way, just as a heads up, you know you're growing uh, to be more like Jesus when you enjoy giving more than receiving. I'm hoping next year I'll get there. You know, I'm trying to get there. It's tough, you know. But, um, but, but, but the, the essence of Christmas is about giving, and we see no greater gift given to us than in the gift of Jesus Christ from God the Father. Perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible says it plainly. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him can experience eternal life. But what we're going to discover as we look through Isaiah 52 and 3 this morning is that Jesus also was fully invested in this exchange of gifts. In fact, Jesus would say himself in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for the Son of Man came not only to be served, he came not to be served, but to serve. There we go, Tanner. Uh, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so as we look into Isaiah 52 and 53 this morning, we're going to see that it teaches us that Jesus was born to die to give us life. Jesus was born to die to give us life. When we come to Isaiah 52 verse 13 through the end of Isaiah 53, we come to what some great leaders of the church have called the Mount Everest of Old Testament prophecy. Charles Spurgeon called this the gospel uh, in essence and the Bible in miniature. Another Old Testament scholar said that this is the most important text of the Old Testament. And what we find as we work through this song is that the song is presented in like five different stanzas, five sections of the song. Each Three verses that we read are separate sections or stanzas, and each one is longer than the other, progressively telling us more about who this servant is. And so I want to read these verses very carefully for us today, and I hope you'll let them sink into your heart today. Not just show up on a Sunday because it's Christmas Sunday, you know what I'm saying? But to really receive what God wants to speak to each and every one of us today. So follow along with me. You can read on the screen, reading your Bible as I read these verses for us. This is what God says about his servant, his son, Jesus Christ. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. 
He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle, or a footnote may say in your Bible, startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion With the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray one more time. Father, we ask that in these moments you would awaken our minds and our hearts to who you are, and to what you've done for us in the greatest gift of Jesus Christ. Father, whatever 
whatever experiences uh, we come in with today, whatever views we may currently hold of you, God, we ask that your truth would reorient our minds and would reshape our hearts to feel, sense, and experience the wonder of the story of you sending your only son into this world to die on our behalf that we might have life. And God, that we would believe all the more, whether for the first time today or just a continual belief and trusting in who Jesus is and what he's done, that we would truly worship you during this season. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. I want to take these five sections and break them down into three truths for us this morning that help us see the, 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 the progression of the, the story of the life of Christ. The first truth I want you to see is that God became man through Bethlehem's cradle. God became man through Bethlehem's cradle. Uh, we, we see this first word of the song. It says, behold. It means to stop and pay attention. It means to look and to let your eyes linger on who this servant is and what he has done. And we all understand that the Christmas, we talked about this last week, how the Christmas season can be so full of many great things that it's hard for us to stop and push pause and just linger and behold who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so my invitation to you is to do that right now. As we see how this song develops, it says at the beginning that God's servant will act wisely. That means that he will take every step necessary to accomplish his given mission. And we see that as he accomplishes this mission, the ultimate result will be that of exaltation. It says the servant will be high and lifted up. He will be exalted. And so there's this tension that we feel throughout the song, right? A great song often will creatively present different contrasting images or tensions. And we have the exaltation of the servant on the one hand, but that this exaltation comes surprisingly through the servant's humiliation. But note from the outset, and know that these first stanza, this first section, it essentially serves as an introduction for everything that's going to be stated below. It says that the servant is high and lifted up. He's high and exalted. Did you know that this, this phrase, high and lifted up, only occurs four times in the Old Testament, all in Isaiah, and the three other times, guess who it's talking about? God the Father. The same designation that God receives, the servant receives. God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. And it says in verse 14 and then in verse 15, there's this language of astonishment. In verse 15, it says that he'll sprinkle many nations. I think a better translation, it could go uh, sprinkle or this other translation you may see in a footnote of your Bible, startle. I think startle fits the context of verse 14, this idea of astonishment. That the servant doesn't live a life like we would expect. 
He doesn't experience the kind of experiences that we would think for a coming king into the world. And we begin to see his humiliation and we begin to see his suffering in verse 14. What does it say? It says that his, his appearance was so marred, it was beyond human semblance. This is the kind of beating and torture, almost to the point of beyond recognition that the servant would experience for us. And that is probably helps us understand or explain the, the nature of the astonishment and, the, and, the, and the, 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 the feelings of being startled by who this servant is. So much so that it would be easy to misunderstand his coming and almost hard to believe. Look at verse 1 of chapter 53. It says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The servant's coming would be so uh, contrary to expectation that, that people would have a hard time believing. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be God's chosen one? Just look at his humble beginnings. It, it talks about in verse 2, he grew up before him, referring to God, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. That's not a majestic picture, a root out of dry ground. And then it goes on to say very explicitly that he had no form or majesty. He, was no, uh, he didn't appear to be a king. He had no beauty that we should desire him. And we look at these verses and we, we see that there's an echo of Isaiah 11.1 1 that talks about uh, the root of David, the offspring of David, the, the Davidic line which would uh, lead to the Messiah, the coming deliverer, this echo uh, in this language here of, of a root out of dry ground. But, but, but these verses talk about how the, the, the really the life of Christ. By the way, it doesn't mean that Jesus was not a physically attractive. It isn't uh, commenting on his physical appearance. What it's, what it's referring to is that his life and his ministry, at the end of the day, the grand reception of all the people, the, 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 the ultimate assessment was not super impressive. and Not, not as we would have expected. And we see this through the, the life of Christ. Jesus was born in a poor nation to poor parents. His birth happened in a makeshift stable. He was placed in a stall for cattle when he was born. He followed in the footsteps of his father, Joseph. He didn't dine in the palaces of kings, but he swung a hammer and lived a very, very ordinary life until his public ministry as he began to preach and do all of his miraculous works. This was all prophesied in the Bible. We can go to Micah 5.2 where it talks about Bethlehem being a small clan, being a, a, a place of, of relative unimportance in terms of size and prominence, Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be named among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old and from ancient of days." What we see in the opening verses of Isaiah 53 is that Jesus had humble beginnings. 
and his life would be one of humility as well. What, is it, what does it say? It says in verse 3 that he was despised and rejected by men. Over and over and over again, the very Son of God. I mean, we, we, get so, we get so disappointed and discouraged when we're rejected. Can you imagine being the very God who made the world and everything in it, being rejected by the people that you made? It says that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He understood the lows of our world. He understood what it meant to be rejected and not embraced. He understood what it meant not to be esteemed, held up as honorable in the sight of others. But this is exactly the kind of king that we should be hoping for, right? I mean, we think about, we think about how, how uh, this picture of a, of a leader king is so antithetical to all that we experience in, in our culture. Um, Jesus is a humble king. And his humility of putting others before himself, of not uh, seeking to reveal how glorious he truly is, how this should inspire our own humility as we go into Christmas week and we have opportunities to serve others and put others before ourselves. In Jesus Christ, we have a humble king. In Jesus Christ, we have a God who understands. Whatever you are experiencing, however you are experiencing the brokenness of our world, the sorrows of life, Jesus was characteristically described as a man of sorrows. And we talk about this a lot at Redemption Hill, that that, that he understood the brokenness of our world better than anyone because he understood how right our world was designed to be in the beginning. So it crushed him in a way that it doesn't crush you or I. He understands. And he's a God who, are you ready for this? He's a God who is extremely delighted in ordinary people. I mean, that, that, that's encouraging news right there. I, I mean, we always kind of chase after the, the grand or, or the most popular or the greatest celebrities. And yet God is just looking for ordinary people. It doesn't have to be something incredibly special about you or no one ever has to know your name, but God is so interested in your life. He cares about every detail. What, what we find here, what I love about the Christmas story and the life of Christ is that while Jesus is not the kind of king we would have expected, he is exactly the kind of king that we need. God became man through Bethlehem's cradle. But as the song builds and as the song goes, we find in verses 4 through 6, that this was necessary because of our predicament. God became man in Bethlehem's cradle. But then number two, Jesus became our substitute at Calvary's cross. When you read verses four through six of Isaiah 53, we have to keep in mind that these verses were written 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. But as some have said, it appears as though they were written in the moment, standing outside of Jerusalem as Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross. 
This is surely one of the reasons why I believe Christianity is real and Jesus is who he says he is and he did what he said he was going to do. What we have in verses four through six is not just a picture of death by crucifixion, but death for substitution. We find in these words the very essence of the gospel. They reveal the great exchange that that, that is happening at the cross of Christ. The exchange that each of us need to experience with God. I want you to note what it says about the servant and what it says about us. And you can just, if you're taking notes, you can even just make two columns on your your page or or on your phone, however you're taking notes, of what it says about Jesus and what it says about us. Look at what it says in verse 4. Jesus bore our griefs. So, So Jesus takes our griefs, and our griefs are gone because they are put on him. Jesus carried our sorrows. He received our sorrows. Our sorrows are gone because they are put on him. He was esteemed, stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. This is what we thought of him. When he's hanging on the cross, people are people mocking him. Hey, if he knew God, God would show up and rescue him. God doesn't care about him. God doesn't love him. That's what's going on as Jesus is paying the price for the next line, our transgressions. He was pierced for our transgression. He is taking our our transgressions, how we've crossed the line, how we've not followed after God's ways. He is paying the price for our rebellion against God. He was crushed for our iniquities. Another way of saying the same thing. He gets chastised to bring us peace. Now we start receiving. See, Jesus was chastised. He was rebuked on the cross, but now through his chastisement, we receive peace. Through his wounds, we receive healing. And then verse 6, perhaps uh, the, the clearest verse that explains the gospel in the Old Testament. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin, the transgression of us all. The price for our rejection of God is very, 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 very great. The price of our rebellion and rejection of God was very, very, very costly. It's hard to read these words. God, help us feel the weight of these words, not as familiar, oh yeah, I've heard that before, but to really enter in to better understand the great price it cost Jesus Christ. Romans 6.23 tells us the the wages of sin. In other words, what we earn for our sin, a wage is what you earn for for, uh, performance of a a task or doing work. 
and what we earn for our, the actions of our sinfulness, the wages of sin is death. That's what is, is to be received because of our sin. And I know that, that you may say, well, look, that's too high of a price. I mean, Tanner, are you serious? Like, couldn't, couldn't have God, like, kind of soften the consequences, you know, lowered the standards a little bit? Like, like death is super serious. Why are the wages of sin death? But to ask that question, though it's a very reasonable question, though I think every person asks that question at some point in their life, I know I have. To ask the question is to reveal that we do not understand the heights of God's holiness and perfections. We don't understand how worthy God is how he is deserving of all of our best allegiance, affection, and attention. And so for us to turn our back on God, to go our own way, it is not a small thing. It's a very, very costly decision. If we could listen, if we could just catch a glimpse of the glory of God for one second, we would not say that this is too high of a price. We would say this is the natural consequence for running from the presence of God, the very presence where life is found, where we were made to live and dwell in and live forever. This is what God wanted for us. You know, I think we think about uh, as we think about this question, as we think about is the price too high, we, we, we start thinking about matters of fairness and justice, right? And we, we think, like, that's not, that's not fair. Like, if, 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 if the wages of sin is death, that doesn't seem right. And, and yet, we all long for justice when we are wronged, right? I was reminded of this uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago. Marsha was doing school pickup, and she was uh, about to come out of a, uh, a parking lot, and uh, there was a, a driver, we'll, we'll say he was in his youth, because he was in his youth. And uh, there was, a, there was a, in front of her, this driver, and, and a bus was coming, and so to, to, I guess, try to be nice to the bus or whatever, he put it in reverse, he gunned it, which meant he flew right into the front of our van. Now, I got to tell you, when Marsha calls me and she's like, hey, you know, this is what happened, the police are coming, and this and that, my first thought is what? Uh, I hope this kid is honest, and I hope he admits his wrong because we don't deserve to pay for his mistake. Right? We all want justice until we are the ones in the wrong. We have to see that we are in the wrong before God. We have to see that God made us for a love relationship with himself and he wants to be closer to us than the closest person that we love in this life, but we have turned away from him. And yet he invites us back. And he wants us to experience all of who he is. And there's one other objection here that I don't want you to, to miss today. 
not only the cost is, is too great, but there's another objection that says, hey, we're not that bad. Have you ever thought that? I'm not that bad. I'm not that, I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm better than most people. I'm better. I mean, you look around, I'm better, better than them, better than them, better. But to say we're not that bad, absolutely contradicts everything we're reading in this chapter. Not only have we rejected and despised God in his plan, we put the Son of God to death. It was our sin that led Jesus to sacrifice himself. This is why I love Rembrandt's painting, uh, The Raising of the Cross. Did you know that Rembrandt painted himself into the picture as one who was crucifying Jesus on the cross? He got it. He understood that the, the price that Jesus was paying when he read these verses, it is our sin, our transgression, our iniquities, our sorrows, our griefs that Jesus is paying for on the cross. And here's some really good news. He did this voluntarily. I mean, Jesus signed up for it. He knew what he was getting himself into when he was born into this world. Verses 7 through 9, in summary, uh, they talk about how that he didn't open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Though Pilate is saying to the crowd again and again, if you read the crucifixion account in the New Testament of Jesus' death, over and over and over again, the gospel writers, as well as even the Roman officials are saying, he did nothing to deserve this death. Jesus could have got off if he wanted to, in a, in a political, physical sense, he could have gone free. In a spiritual sense, when he was betrayed by Judas with a kiss, Peter steps up to defend him. And Jesus says, what are you doing? Don't you know that I could call on 12 legions of angels and, and they would wipe all these people out that are trying to arrest me? And yet Jesus willingly goes to the cross. He voluntarily gives his life up. As he would say in John chapter 15, I think it's verse 13, greater love has no one than this, maybe 13, 15, God, greater love has no one than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And this is exactly what Jesus does for us on a Roman cross. Jesus became our substitute at Calvary's cross, but the story does not end there. Jesus overcame death and now wears the crown of life, as it tells us in verses 10 through 12. Look, look, look at verse 10. It opens by saying, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And so as we think about the age-old question that maybe you've heard this uh, asked before, who crucified Jesus? 
the Jewish leaders were certainly the ones who brought him and incriminated him and falsely accused him before the Romans, but it was the Romans who carried out his death by crucifixion. And yet we just read and we just hopefully agreed that it was our sin, that that we were the reason that Jesus went to the cross, and yet Jesus went to the cross voluntarily. But behind it all, behind it all, he was fulfilling the ultimate plan of God to redeem and reorder our world into the ways that we long to experience, both both personally and culturally and globally, Jesus' death is uniting all things back into order. And this reclamation project has begun now, but it will be fully seen in its full consummation when Jesus returns. And so God planned out the sacrifice of his son But God also knew that he had planned that death would not stop him. And you can get excited about that this morning, all right? Death would not stop. The victory of the cross gives way to the victory of the defeat of death in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's all over the Bible. Psalm 22, Psalm 16, Isaiah 53. Look at these these words. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, what? He shall see his offspring. There's life after death. He's going to see the ones that he died to save. He shall prolong his days. They are going to go on and on and on without end after he defeats death. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. He will be satisfied with the experience of victory. Some translations would put it, he shall see the light of God and be satisfied with it. It has connotations of joy that Jesus experiences after he rises from the dead. And it says that, that, that he, uh, by his knowledge, uh, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous as he bears their iniquity. It's it's, it's through his death and resurrection that Jesus makes many to be accounted righteous. And what that means is simply this, that, that those who look to him and the gift that he offers and trust in what he has done for them, God gives a totally new life and counts them righteous in his sight. In other words, they have a right standing with God because of their faith in Jesus. But notice it says many, which does not mean all. It's only for those that look to the Son and believe in what he has done for them. Verse 12 goes on to talk about the the victory of Christ, that he will divide uh, him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. It's a picture of a victory parade that Jesus is leading as he marches forward. But once again, the last four, four lines sum it all up. They sum up why this is needed and why Jesus deserves the honor. 
because he poured out his soul to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus was born to die to give us life. The greatest gift anyone could ever receive is the gift of eternal life that is given to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Romans 6.23 begins by saying, for the wages of sin is death. But it finishes by saying, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so I want to ask you very simply and very plainly and very clearly today, have you received the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ? Verse 1 asks the question, who has believed what he has heard from us? And the same question is being asked today. In Jesus Christ, do you see your Savior, your King, the one that has invited you to have a seat at his table and to follow him for your entire life and into eternity. If you've never said yes to Christ and given your life over to him, my invitation to you today is to receive the greatest gift that you can ever receive in this life or the next one. And if you have received it, then would you once again, once again, be in awe and be filled with wonder and gratitude for who Jesus is and what he has done in your place by living, dying, and rising again that we might have life. Let's pray together. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to ask you today, if, if, if you have never received the greatest gift, the true gift of Christmas, and you're ready to begin a relationship with God, and you're saying, hey, I want to step into the life of Christ. I want to experience the life that Jesus died to bring me. If that's you saying for the first time, I want to begin a relationship with God, would you just raise your hand really high because I want to pray for you and I want to encourage you wherever you are in this new journey that you're starting with God. And so look, people aren't looking around. I'm the only one with my eyes open. But if you'll raise your hand to, to just say, hey, I want to start this journey with Jesus. I want to receive the gift. If you'll raise it super high right now so I can pray for you. And as I lead in prayer for all of us this Christmas season, let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for every person who right now is choosing to step into the life of Christ, to receive the life that you died to bring them. God, we ask that you would strengthen them and empower them in this new journey as they've received the greatest gift, the gift of salvation. And so God, even now as they call out to you and say, God, I need you in my life. Forgive me of my rebellion and going my own way and and help me, strengthen me to live my life every day as an expression of 
the gratitude and joy now that I find in you. God, we pray that you would strengthen them for this journey ahead. And God, we ask that this Christmas week, that we all would have a deeper sense of wonder and gratitude for the immense price that was paid on our behalf through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.